Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. How are y'all doing this morning? It's good to see you here. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse, and uh, it's my privilege to get to bring God's Word to you uh, here this morning. Um, I'd like to welcome you all here, especially if you're, uh, if you're a guest with us, first time with us. Thank you for taking the time and being here with us uh, today. Uh, and if you're visiting with us online, uh, again, thank you for being here. Um, and we really hope that you'll come and join us soon and be a part, because the experience of being here is something that's very different. It's always amazing to watch people that check us out online and then come visit us and they go, yeah, it's much better being here. So, uh, so hopefully, hopefully, if you're online, you'll do that uh, very soon. My family and I uh, were on vacation a few weeks back, and we traveled to a state all the way across the country called Colorado. And if you know me, that's where we moved from a year ago. I had a chance to, to come and to be a part of Lighthouse and what God's doing here. Um, but I had the privilege of doing my niece's wedding uh, out there in Colorado, and just a beautiful time to see and go back and visit people and see some things that we are familiar with. And, um, and quite honestly, it's uh, Finley is home. <laughs> and you come back home and you go, we're going home. And it was a really great feeling to come back and to, uh, to do that. But one of the things that uh, maybe you don't know about me that maybe you should is that I'm a bit of a foodie. Uh, food, uh, I love food. Food, food is good. Uh, like Matt Smith, if it's meat, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, so when we went to Colorado, what, uh, what we did, I, in my mind, I had this mental list of the food that I needed to eat while I was there. Anybody like me, you go places where you know and you're going, there's places I need to eat while I'm there. And so I did. And so I had a few places that I wanted to, to go to. One of them was a place called Snooze. Uh, Snooze is a, like a, a restaurant kind of chain in the Colorado area, and I'm telling you, they have mastered the pancake. That sounds bizarre, and like it's just flour and like eggs and oil and stuff, and you're saying they've mastered it. They really have, and it's really about what's on the pancake and not so much about what's in the pancake, uh, but they've mastered the pancake, and they do a pretty great Eggs Benedict as well. Uh, I had to get an In-N-Out burger. Anybody here a fan of In-N-Out when you can get it? Oh, man. It's like, that's, that's, that's God's hamburger right there. That's a good thing. So if you get one of those, that's a good thing. But the other place I really wanted to go while I was there was a place called Sirius Texas Barbecue. And uh, barbecue is, that's, that's good stuff. And I'm not sure, it's a Colorado company, and they called it Texas. I, I'm not sure what the thing is about that, so somehow Texas has a corner on bar. I don't think so. Uh, but uh, they have this there. But, but they, they have this thing there that I go for, and it's called the Texas Taco. And here's what it is. Anybody hungry yet? I'm going to give you, give you a second, and here we're going to go. It's a flour tortilla. You have me a flour tortilla, you know, kind of going, yeah, anything in a tortilla is good, burritos, flour tortilla, and then they take a big scoop, and I'm talking like it's a big scoop of cheesy potatoes, and they put that inside there, oh yeah, and then they take some pulled pork, and they put that on top of that. And then they add some diced onions and some jalapenos. And some of you guys are going, yeah, you lost me. You're done with that. But all that together and then the sauce, and it is unbelievable. It is an incredible treat, and it is so good. And I, and I, I went in there uh, for that. If you're not hungry yet, there's something wrong with you. But I showed up there and walked in. They're planning to get two of these bad boys. I've never finished two in my life. But again, I hadn't been there in a year, so I thought, I'm going to try. You know? And so I walked in trying to get a couple of these. And I looked at the board, and it was a sign across it that said, Sold out. 
Oh my goodness. Do you guys not realize that I drove two days across the country to get these tacos and you're telling me they're sold out? Not a good thing. Not a good thing. So I went up to the counter. I'm talking to the lady and she's offering me these other options. Yeah, you can get the brisket sandwich with coleslaw on it. That sounds good. Yeah, that's a good thing. Or you can get the jalapeno sausage, you know, and that's good too. So I got this, uh, this sandwich that, they, that I chose and it was like, okay, I can, I can deal with that. I'll tolerate it. Got my drink to go to the soda fountain, had my drink and walked up, and guess what they had done? They had switched from Pepsi to Coke. Yeah, I know, so <laughs> I'm not the only one that really has a strong opinion about this, but uh, so I went ahead and I, I thought, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? This place is like, it's not what I remember, and so I thought, okay, I'll tolerate that too, so I put my, my cup under there and filled it with the inferior carbonated beverage. <laughs> And at that moment right there, I was wishing I'd just turned around and walked out the door and gone to Chick-fil-A or something at that moment. But I was just feeling really disillusioned by this whole thing. And I sat down and I'm thinking, the sauce better be the same sauce because that's really what matters in barbecue is the sauce. And it was. But from my perspective, everything had been tainted so long, I had tolerated all these things that were not what I remember them being to the extent that I got to this point of the sauce and it just didn't taste the same. It wasn't the same experience for me. I was just tolerating the sandwich. I was tolerating the drink. I was tolerating it all. And regardless of what it was, then there was a compromise in the moment that I sat there and tolerated what I had. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18, and uh, we're working through a series, going through Jesus' words um, to the church, the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, and we call this series Revealed, Overcoming the Distractions of Following Jesus, and today is the Distraction of Tolerance. Distraction of Tolerance, it is a buzzword in our society today. It's a buzzword, it's a word we, uh, we hear a lot of, and today we're looking at the church of, of Thyatira, and uh, something I, I know about tolerance is that it is a word that is completely devoid of passion. Think about that for a second. And yet, at the same time, its place in our lives reveals what we're truly passionate about. Let's pick up and read in in Revelation chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen, uh, but you can look in your Bible. I'm reading out of the ESV um, and picking up in verse 18. It says, To the angel at the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter work exceed the first. But 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 I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works works deserve. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, "I I, uh, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end. To him, I give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earth, earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has, a, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we jump into this passage today, I just want to kind of lay it out real quick for you and tell you that of the seven churches that are taught in, 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 in the beginning of Revelation, Thyatira is probably the church that we have the least information about. Uh, there's not a lot of archaeological uh, information and so forth like that. We just don't have a lot of information to really fully grasp everything that's probably in here. But the truth is, is we get enough to give us what we need for today. And so I'd like to start by, uh, and so what we're going to do today in, in speaking uh, clearly through this, uh, the foundational issue for each of us and confronting each of us each day is we're talking about tolerance and we're talking about compromise. Now, I know Fritz talked about compromise a few weeks back when he was talking about Pergamum, um, and there's a lot of similarities between Pergamum and Thyatira, but I'd like to start by telling you where I'm going, and here it is. You ready? Real simple. Today, I want you to understand better what it means to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Real simple. What does it look like for us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus? So what I'm going to do is I want to start in the first thing and give you some background and some context for it, and then I want to spend a little bit of time making it personal for you. And then the last thing I want to do this morning is to, the third part, is to actually give you kind of a glimpse into looking into the face of Jesus and understanding what it looks like to gaze on him. So as we do this, let's jump into this. Let's jump into this uh, here. So Thyatira was, the heart, was at the heart of commerce uh, in that region. In fact, it was a commercial center uh, of that part of the world coming into Asia. It was so much so that, there were the, that where it was located, that it was near the sea, and it was also right at the end, at the beginning of like a valley where you had the, the mountains on the side. You guys know what mountains are. This is Ohio. Mountains are those tall things, you know, that you see in the distance when you're out west or go out east a little further. Anyway, so there's this valley right there, and it was close to that entrance there. And so any of the trade and commerce from the area needed to come through there. Probably about half of what came through Asia uh, in that time went through Thyatira. And there's something important here about Thyatira that makes it especially important to the heart of Jesus. And it was this, is that there were a number of what were called trade guilds that were, that were happening, uh, that were in that, in that part of the world, in that region. And these guilds were for all kinds of stuff. We can, you know, maybe, maybe call it something that we know of today. Maybe it's unions or something like that today. But these people had to be a part of these trade, these trade guilds. If you worked there, there were wool workers. There were iron workers. There were iron workers. I don't think so. There were wool workers. There were linen workers. There were, yeah, that was, that was weird. I get it. Uh, makers of, of garments. There were those that dyed the garment, there were leather workers, there were tanners, there were bakers, there were potters, there were bronze smiths and shoemakers and so on and so on and so on. That were all these guilds that they had to be a part of. And these people identify themselves with the guilds that they were a part of. That was part of how they identified themselves was what, was what they were. And here's why it mattered to Jesus um, you know, so much in this time. Also, I just want to let you guys know too that it wasn't just the fact that they identified, but for them to be successful in Thyatira, they actually had to be a part of one or their success was something that was very far removed from what they could accomplish there. And here's why, it's, why, it's, why it mattered to Jesus. Uh, uh, to be a part of a trade guild meant that you would be expected to participate in the trade guild's activities. 
the things that were related to what was happening there. And the social activities were inescapably tied to the worship of other gods. And so these people had a struggle here. I read a guy, uh, his name is William Barclay, and I'm just going to read you what he wrote, um, kind, of, kind of explaining this. He said this. He said, the trade, guilds had common, had, uh, the trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. It was, such, it was, it was, a fact, it, it was in fact the heathen grace or prayer before and after the meal. Could Christians join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of the animal would be offered on an altar. The meat of it would be given to the worshipers to make a feast for the members of the guild. Could a Christian sit and eat a meal like that that had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo or Artemis? And even further, the trade guild feast would not infrequently degenerate into carousals over drunkenness and sexual immorality or the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted line, the accepted things that they did? You want to talk about the tension that these people felt. You had to be a part of it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it was difficult to find your way in, do, in, 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 in being a person in these communities, in this community uh, with that. So to be a local, to be joining these, you, it was disastrous if you didn't join a guild, if you weren't a part of it. And I hope you feel that tension. And then it goes even further in this passage here where it goes beyond that. And it says there's one thing else that's a problem here. And it was this. It was this, uh, this woman, a certain woman that Jesus called Jezebel, was teaching a theology that encouraged compromise. Now, this plays really well into the whole guild thing because, because Jezebel was saying it's okay to compromise uh, what it is that you're doing for the sake of what it is that you need to accomplish. Now, we don't know for sure what her name was, but Jezebel, was, was, but, but, Je, but Jezebel, Jesus uses this name to make a point. And he's making a point to, to help us understand the brokenness of who Jezebel was in First and Second Kings and, and to say this woman has a very similar sort of story to Jezebel. And there's probably those of you in this room that are going, I've never heard of this Jezebel or I don't quite remember. So let's go back and review who this Jezebel was, kind of give us the context leading into this, uh, into this here. Um, we, we, uh, we look at Jezebel and we see that she was uh, a woman who was, um, uh, she was the daughter of a king uh, initially who was hostile to Israel. Somebody who was not an Israelite, and her, she was the daughter of a king who was hostile to Israel. And she, she was a committed worshiper of a god by the name of Baal. And so she, she did that. And uh, Baal was the god of nature and fertility. Going forward, she was connected with Israel later on in life when she married a king by the name of Ahab. And she married Ahab, and when she married him, she came to Israel, and she brought Baal worship with her in, 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 coming, in coming here. And she grew in power very, very fast. Queen Jezebel was someone who became very powerful, and she brought this Baal worship with her and even convinced King Ahab to build an altar to Baal there in Israel. She, was, she promoted the worship of many other gods and prophets and even, had a, and even had any prophet who was worshiping the true God, as the, as the, as the Jews would have called him Yahweh, and they would, the true God Yahweh had them put to death or tortured for what it was that they, that they stood for. And her claim was this. Her claim was that the people of Israel could worship both God, both the God of Israel and the God Baal at the same time. 
They could do that, and it wasn't a problem. There's no doubt that she knew the Old Testament law that said, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. There's no doubt that she, she knew that. The prophets of God, the prophets of God said either or, and Jezebel, she said both and. And so that's a problem for these people as they dealt with it. And then entered a prophet by the name of Elijah. Elijah shows up on the scene because God sent him there. And you have Elijah uh, that, show, that shows up there, put up on the screen here, 1 Kings 18. And it says this, it says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's basically saying, pick one, guys. You can't have them both. It's one or the other. You can't do it both ways. How long will you sit on the fence? And if you know the story of Elijah, it goes on even further in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings. You have this, this picture of Elijah, and maybe you know the story, but it's a pretty fantastic story. And by the way, if you haven't read the story of, of, of Jezebel and Elijah and all that, go back and read it. It's amazing. Because here's what happened. You have Elijah that shows up on a place called Mount Carmel, and he's actually, and he's actually challenged the prophets of Baal and another, another god called Asherah. And he calls them out and says, okay, guys, if your god is real, let's have a showdown on Mount Carmel, right? Shows up on Mount Carmel, and he says, okay, show me what you got. And so they get out there, and the story, the story is littered with all kinds of stuff. And I'll just tell you, there was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, there was a lot of cutting themselves, there was a lot of wailing. And Elijah even pokes fun at them, you know, during this thing and says, well, maybe your God's asleep, or maybe he's on the toilet, you know. And literally, that's what he says. He goes, you know, just kind of making fun of these people and going, hey, you know, bring it all you got. And then what happened is, is then there's a whole bunch of water, and then there's fire. <laughs> and we're not just talking any fire. We're talking white hot fire that comes down from heaven because the scripture says in, these, in this passage in Kings where it says that the fire came down and not only consumed the altar that had been presented by the prophets of Baal and Asherah, but it consumed the altar, the stones, and the dust. Man, I've never seen a fire that can burn dust. So I've seen fires that'll melt cans and bottles, but I've never seen one that'll actually consume dust. It's amazing. Go read it. Elijah shows up to stand against Jezebel. You get a picture of who this Jezebel is and what Jesus is saying in Revelation 2, that this Jezebel, and there's very similar stuff that's going on like this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a martyr, he said this. He said, the human heart has capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. So this woman that Jesus calls Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2, through, uh, through what was said in verse 24, if you look at it, it says, the deep things of Satan, she was able to convince the Christians that their godless behavior done with the trade guilds would not affect their relationship with Jesus. She was saying you can have both. It doesn't have to be either or. It's not sold out to Jesus. You know, you've heard it said before, or maybe you've seen a bumper sticker that says, try God. Folks, let me tell you something. That is not what the gospel call is. The gospel call is sell out, give everything. And Jezebel is saying, nah, just give this guy a try and give this guy a try, and let's see what happens when they, when they come together. Truth is, the opposite is what happened, though. In verse 19, if you look at it in your Bibles, you'll see that it says Jesus really commends them for their love, for their work, for their faith, for their service, and their patient endurance. Some of them were, were growing and maturing as demonstrated in their lives. 
They were actually growing in their love for each other. They were growing in their faith for God. They were growing in all these things, and Jesus is commending them. And he says, however you tolerate Jezebel. You tolerate Jezebel. Be careful there. How can this be the case? And she seemed to really lead them into a spirit of compromise. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Fritz was talking about this very thing as it related to these verses about Pergamum. And one of the points that that he was making in that that I want to wrap around on here is how compromise will only make us deviate more and more over time. One or two degrees off now will send us off direction in both time and distance. A small shift makes them throw us off in, in, over the long term of what it is and where it is that we're going. So they began to tolerate the spirit of compromise. And Jesus tells them not to tolerate it so that you don't compromise. I believe that when we find ways to have Jesus along with something else, Jesus is the one who will end up getting the short end of the stick. There's always going to be something that gives. And I believe oftentimes when we try to do that, we find ourselves giving Jesus less than he actually deserves. Secondly, this morning, after we get through the the background, the second thing, let's just make it personal uh, real quick here. So the question that comes out, out from this is how will you follow? How will they follow? And how will you follow? For the people of Thyatira, it was, will you follow Jesus and the trade guild? It can't be both. What's the equivalent for us? currently in our world today? Success in business or a vital relationship with God? I think it's pretty clear what guides my decisions. I recognize that the situation that that the people in Thyatira were in is very different from what we deal with maybe today. Because the truth is, is you may not be asked to join an idol feast, and if you don't, you're unable to work in Northwest Ohio. However, you might be asked for a smaller compromise. Maybe people at your work or someplace in your community, they want to offer up a prayer and they know you're a Christian, but they say, hey, will you pray? But just leave that Jesus thing out when you pray. Is that okay? Is it okay to do that? For each one of us, we, we, make, we make a decision. We might be asked to pray in that context or we might feel the pressure to make an appearance in an event that's probably going to be inappropriate. And even though these things might be far-fetched for most of you, I wonder what other ways we might be asked or feel the need to compromise. What does the voice of Jezebel sound like today? What does it sound like today? How about like this? I'm all for loyalty to Jesus, but things just don't work that way in the real world. In the real world, the world that we live in, maybe we're compromising and we're tolerating things by, it just doesn't work that way. But doesn't the real world need the presence of Jesus too? Is there some other world that we can live in to make sure Jesus is seen and heard and people to follow him? Or how about this? You just can't understand. If I'm going to make it, if I'm going to make a way to share the gospel, then I need to maybe do this or this or this. But here's a question I ask you for that is, what's the line? How do you know where the line is? And when do you know you've reached the line? Or when do you know that you've crossed over the line? Or how about this? Keep your religion and business and politics separate. As though Jesus can be confined to a single part of our lives. I'm not turning this into some sort of political message or anything like that, but I just want you to understand that Jesus trickles into every single part of our lives. 
influences the way we think, influences the things that we do, influences the places that we, that we go, all those things. We tend to compartmentalize our lives. And one value for this, for this part of life, I have one value for this part of my life, and then I go somewhere else, and I have a different value maybe that comes through. It's almost like schizophrenic Christians sometimes, where we are one play when we're here, and then we become something else when we go somewhere else. And we find ourselves compromising and tolerating what it is that maybe we need to be in those moments. I read a quote this week, and it said this. It says, compartmentalization, compartmentalizing our lives and, uh, is the means by which we maintain the illusion of both and, Baal worship. In other words, I can be holy on Sunday and it can change on Monday because of, well, you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. It's entertainment. It's whatever it needs to be. Can I tell you that this guy right here, the guy that's talking to you right now, is a guy that has to be on guard against this as well. I'm not exempt from this as well because I have to say, I have to look in the mirror when I say this, this is something that I have to war against every single day. And I find myself sometimes compromising and tolerating the things that maybe I shouldn't. And I would say that in the church today, like in the church at Thyatira, the spirit of Jezebel is with us as well. And as we listen to her, we tolerate Baal worship. And here's what I mean. Baal was thought to be the god of nature. And when I say nature, I'm talking about the nature of how things are. And to say this is not to confuse with, things, with how things are, with how the things should be. So the problem with belief that Jesus, the, the, the problem, I want to kind of give you an example of this actually. So look at the things that are in our current broken state is, in this sinful world is the equivalent to Baal worship today. It's a false belief to say that because I have certain desires and drives that they must be right. Why? Simply because I have them. The problem with this belief is that Jesus taught that, in this, that this world is not what it was originally created to be. Something has gone wrong. And that something is called sin. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And some of the things that are should not be. Some of the desires that, that maybe we have are distorted and maybe have been ruining our lives or those around us because we give in to them and we tolerate something small and then we give in and we compromise. And the way we recognize the distortions, guys, is this, is not continuing to grow in our understanding of the distortions of the world around us, but rather to grow in our knowledge and understanding of what the Word of God says. Because it will shine a light on that which is true and it will shine a light on that, on that which is false. The way we can recognize them is knowing the truth. Verse 25 in, in, the, in, in Revelation 2 says, to hold fast. That's where we get that. To hold fast to the truth that you have, to the truth that you know. Cling to it for your very life. And the question that must be answered now is how? How is it we hold on to it? How do we remain loyal in our world today? How can we maintain the courage and the grace to follow Jesus without compromise and find ourselves being tolerant of something that maybe we shouldn't be? The answer is keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Does that sound too simple? Sound like just a, a, like a bad, cheap book and you go, okay, I probably could have gotten that anywhere, that kind of thing, but does it sound too simple? I used to pastor uh, a man who traveled all over the world for business. He, uh, he traveled far, uh, largely in the Far East because uh, he did a lot of manufacturing stuff and things like that. So he traveled to China and Japan and Thailand and the Philippines. And one of the things that he would tell me was that, was that it was an overly common thing of what was known as hospitality girls. 
And I'm not going to explain that anymore. I'm going to let you, you guys, are, you guys can understand what I mean when I'm saying it because that's exactly what they called them was hospitality, hospitality girls. And it was something that was the unashamed piece of the culture of the people. And they would see in the hotels and throughout the cities. And he found himself needing to be careful of this because it was very available. And he was unaccountable in his life. Completely unaccountable on the other side of the world. And when he was tempted, he would, he, would, he would actually start to, he actually started to do something where he would, he took a picture of his wife and his family, and he stuck one in his wallet, and he stuck the other one in his briefcase. I might tell you how long ago it's been, I'm not sure if people still carry briefcases anymore, but he would carry these pictures, and, and when he, he would pull, he would actually pull them out, and he started to carry them with him, and he was tempted, he'd pull out the picture of his wife, and he would look into her eyes in that picture, and he would see the truth in the moment, and it would fleet. One night he was having dinner in the hotel restaurant and he was approached by one of these hospitality girls and she attempted to proposition him and she reached his, so in that moment he reached into his pocket and he pulled out the picture and he held it up in front of her face and said, I belong to her. That's what he said. And she, and she fled, she left. And I want each one of us to stop, and not necessarily that illustration for each one of us specifically, but I want you to see that how we maintain the loyalty is keeping a picture of Jesus in our minds. That picture of Jesus in our minds so that when we are tempted and we're pushed that in, we can hold that picture up and say, Satan, I belong to him. I belong to him, and I'm not wavering from what it is that I believe and who it is that I am to compromise in this situation. And so what I want to do in the third thing this morning is I want to show you a picture of Jesus in in this passage this morning. And it's found in these words in Revelation 2 to keep in front of us. And there are six facets of this picture I want to show you, picking up in verse 18. The first one is the Son of God, where it says in verse 18, the Son of God. And this really is just a contrast to what the people of Thyatira believed. They saw Apollos and Caesar as, quote, sons of the high God. They were rulers over, over these people. And they, but Jesus is the only one, the only son of the living God. And because of this title, he has the authority and the power over their views and is the true living God because all the rest are smaller and they pale in comparison. Can I add here too that the son of God, being Jesus, is the one who answers to nobody else? He's been given authority over all rulers and all nature and all the trade guilds and all the governing bodies, and all the courts, and all the, co- all, the, all, the, all the corporations, and the nations. He is the head honcho chicken over the governing bodies, over it all. Over it all. I answer to nobody but the Son of God. The first facet is the Son of God. The second one is in verse 18 as well, and it's this, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And I want to, I want to kind of land here for just a quick second because that's both terrifying and comforting. If you think about it, this terrifying thing of eyes that are like a flame of fire, what that does, it's an image of something that shines light into the darkest recesses of my life, cuts through the darkness and reveals what is truly there. Verse 23 says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and he searches the deepest part of our being. Nothing we do, nothing we say, nothing that we feel, none of that will escape his notice. But the image of fiery eyes is also comforting too because these same eyes that can look through me to see me is not just looking through me to see me, but it's a comforting God who says, I love you. 
I can see everything in you, but I love you in spite of that. I love that so much. These eyes that can see, yeah, they see me, but he's not doing that, but he's there to transform me too, to see who I truly am and to transform me from the inside out, to bring me to life, to show me the real who I am, who I am in Christ. The third facet is found in verse 18 too. It says, his feet are like burnished bronze. I see strength in these feet who can walk where I cannot and overcome evil that seeks to destroy me. But also those burnished bronze feet are the feet that pursue me when I run from God, when I step out of line, when I start going my own way. They run after me when I run away from him. And boy, that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? It definitely does. There's a book, and I'm sure many of you have read it. The book is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by a guy named C.S. Lewis. You've read this book before, but the story, C.S. Lewis, in the book, there's a story um, um, in there, and kind of a spoiler alert. If you haven't read it, shame on you, but go read it. But spoiler alert, in this, one of my favorite scenes in the book is where, where Beaver, Mrs. Beaver, is telling the children about Aslan, the lion. And Aslan is the Jesus figure in the story. And Susan asks a question. I'm just going to read you what it says. Is he quite safe? I shall quite be nervous about meeting a lion. That you, will do, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anything, anyone who can appear before Aslan without his knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. He's good. See, the bronze feet show what that he means business. He's not safe. He never claimed to be safe, but he's good. He is the epitome of good. The fourth facet is in verse 21. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she was unwilling. The eyes of fire and bronze of feet, bronze of feet, the feet of bronze is merciful even to Jezebel. Gave her time to turn around, to change her ways, to come to her senses. He gives us time. He doesn't rush judgment, but patiently waits for all to come to him. The fifth facet is in verse 23. It says, I will give each one according to your deeds. This is not saying that we have to be said we are saved by our good deeds. It's saying that our deeds emerge from our hearts, revealing our true allegiances revealing who we truly are, what we're truly devoted to. Let me say it this way. The proof of our love for Jesus is found in how we live each day, showing how we treat our coworkers, we treat our family, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. The sixth and final facet is the one who makes and keeps his promises. In verses 26 and 27, it says, to the one who overcomes remains loyal and keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations just as I have received authority from the Father. See, this first promise is truly amazing and it should drive us to a posture of complete submission. And is this, those who belong to him will rule with him. It's amazing to me. Why would we compromise our allegiance to God and seek things now? And we have the promise of a greater future. And the second promise is in verse 28. It says, to overcome, I will give you the morning star. And I want you guys to hear this. This is really important. He talks about the morning star is Christ himself. If you look at Revelation 22, you see that in the end, that the morning star is Jesus Christ himself. 
And this is what he calls himself. Let me give you this picture. The morning star is a picture of the darkest part of the night. The dark part of the night when it's not going to get any darker, but the next phase is going to be in the morning, light starts to come. And it's a star that comes through in that moment. What an amazing picture for us of Christ's position in our lives where he says, I'm there, I'm going to give you that because when it seems like I'm the furthest away, I'm the brightest. When it seems like the world is the darkest, I'm right there. What it seems to indicate is that it's only going to get brighter from here. doesn't mean it's going to get easier, but Jesus is the bright and morning star. And when we keep our focus on him, he will help us to remember the struggle is almost over. And that we can have courage and follow even when it seems too costly. You see, these six facets of the picture of Jesus here should encourage us. Knowing that looking into his face, he will give us the courage to stand. Looking into his face that is drawn here in these words. You can say, you can find it difficult in the moments of compromise and tolerance to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, but in this part of my life, I'm going to choose a different Lord. It's easier to stand in those moments, holding that picture up and saying, I belong to him. He's mine. I am his. I pray that our lives and actions will be marked by our passion for Christ more than our tolerance for everything else. But if you're here today and you've not said yes to Jesus, here's what this is saying to you. Until you step out of the role as leader of your life, the only picture that you're going to hold up is going to be you. And I'm going to tell you that that picture of you is going to burn one day. It's a picture of you because outside of Christ in us, we are always going to fall short. So my challenge for you is maybe today is a day where you say yes to Jesus as your forgiver and leader, and then you start holding up the picture of Jesus saying, I'm his. I'm no longer living for me. Toleration, by definition, requires a standard. Think about it. And if we're not careful, what happens is toleration can slip into acceptance, and this will weaken our testimony for the gospel in our lives. If you just look around the world today, you can see exactly what I mean. When it slips, we tolerate something small and it continues to slip away. It's Fritz's point of degrees of compromise. On the back of your connection card, if you haven't taken it out yet, take it out here just a quick second and look at it. And on the back, there are a couple of options that I, I want to point out. First one is yes, saying yes to Jesus. Maybe today, in your heart, you said yes to Jesus. And there's no special prayer. It's just making the choice in your heart right now. I say yes to him as my forgiver and leader. The second thing on there is maybe you need to pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you're passionlessly tolerating. Or maybe you already know and you just need to repent. And then finally this week, there's a Bible passage that I think might be helpful, and it's in Psalm 139. And I'd like to challenge you to read that this week and meditate on those words throughout the coming week. Check those boxes, and we'll be praying for you this week. I'm going to ask that we close our eyes and bow our heads, and we do this at the end of every service, and we ask a simple question. Jesus, what are you telling me today?
Speaking of prayer, we have prayer partners that are available. We have people that are going to be in the corners of the room, one up here in the front, one on this corner over here in the back, and they're going to be getting into place right now as they get ready to do that. If you need prayer, if maybe you need someone just to pray with you, pray over you, pray for you, I would ask that you would do that. There's no shame in prayer. All of us need prayer. I need prayer. You need prayer. We all do. Just finding the person that you can pray with in that moment and grab them and come and pray. We're going to sing one more song, and during that that time, go ahead and step out of your seat. Don't wait. Don't assume it's going to be easier. Just get up and do it. Go find those persons. So I'm going to ask you to stand and join me as we stand. We're going to sing one more song and come and pray. And as we do this, I'm going to pray. Father, I pray right now that you will bring everybody who needs prayer in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.